This podcast was brought to you by the University of Gloucestershire Sustainability. Visit sustainability.gloucesterac.uk or follow on Instagram at UOG Sustainability to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome to today's podcast. My name is Will. And my name is Nikki. And today's episode is Live Smart Investigates Social Prescribing. That's right. I'm really excited to hear from our guest today as I will hold my hands up and say that this is a topic I do not know much about. So join us for this episode where we will be hearing from three guests uh, to discover what social prescribing is and how it's being used today. So should we get started? Today we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Rachel Sumner. Hi Rachel, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on our Live Smart Investigate Social Prescribing podcast. Um, For the benefit of our listeners, would you mind introducing yourself and your role within the university, please? Of course. So I'm Rachel Sumner. I'm a senior lecturer in psychology. I'm also the course leader for the Masters in Health Psychology, which started last year. I'm a psychobiologist, so I'm really mostly interested in how the sort of physical workings of our brain can then have an impact on mostly cellular markers of health and well-being, so things like hormones and immune cells and things like that. One of the other areas I'm really interested in is also just sort of how how our environments can impact our health as well, whether that's our working environment or our social environment or engaging in activities that can have an impact on our health and well-being as well. Obviously, today we're talking about social prescribing. Put simply, can you tell us what that is? What is social prescribing? Well, social prescribing is a particular technique which is becoming more commonplace in the NHS now and has been over the last sort of decade I guess it's essentially prescribing a patient with a non-medical activity so whereas doctors usually give prescriptions for pills or for surgery or something like that this instead is to prescribe an activity to prescribe a social experience for people and that might be uh, to join a book club it might be to do uh, join some sort of you know community social weight loss club it might be gardening it could be learning how to do different types of arts which is some of the work that I've done it could be getting out into nature and doing nature-based activities it's essentially the ability to prescribe something that isn't medical but that will hopefully have some sort of medical benefit and it's usually for patients who have some sort of identifiable psychosocial need now obviously as we're getting into an older population and we're getting much much better at treating people we now have people coming into GPs offices who are very complex they may have one or more chronic medical health conditions and they also tend to present with other types of psychosocial issues such as loneliness or maybe bereavement or maybe some mental health issues as well so the whole point about social prescribing is to try to first of all give somebody some support for their well-being but also to get them more integrated into their social community as well and social prescribing programs tend to be focused in community areas so where you may be prescribed to go and do some gardening or do some art that will be in a specific community context so you will get to meet people in your community as well and they're usually not needs-based so it's not like so people very frequently confuse arts on prescription for art therapy and art therapy is one of those things that's been going for a really really long time and uh, you might be prescribed art therapy if you have schizophrenia or psychosis or if you have an eating disorder or if you have cancer and there might be a specific group of people that do that and they are all there because of that specific medical need social prescribing in contrast is actually where people all come together and they don't know why anybody else is there they all have different Mm -hmm. needs they all come from different backgrounds they all have different sort of medical or psychosocial needs you're not there to 
talk about uh, your, your own personal health issues. You're just there to do something, to do something fun, to, do, to learn how to do some art or to get out into nature or to learn how to create a, a chair out of you know, driftwood or, or whatever. It's just a nice activity, a purposeful activity that people can do to, to create something and to meet other people in their local area. That sounds fantastic. I think, um, you know, loneliness and, and mental health issues, I can really see the benefits of something like that um, and going to see people and meeting new people and not having necessarily the pressures of having to share your personal experiences or your personal problems, um, but just being able to like enjoy it for what it is. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> In terms of the utility of social prescribing, what are the main kind of benefits? As I said, it's been sort of increasing over the last decade or so. And mm. along with its its practice has come its evaluation as well. And so we're starting to learn more and more about how social prescribing can best be deployed, but also what sorts of benefits we might be able to observe from it. The problem that we've had up until recently, I guess, is that we've relied on sort of small groups of people uh, to, to try and get some of this benefit out to try and understand this benefit. But the work my, my colleagues and I have been doing over the last four or five years has been working on the largest data set in the world of arts on prescription interventions. And we've established a whole load of really important outcomes for people. So we know that there are demonstrable and reliable increases to people's well-being. We've also recently discovered that um, this also has an impact on levels of anxiety and depression. There's a particular scale that we've been using to try to assess this. And one of those scales particularly the anxiety one, there are clinical markers where somebody may be able to be diagnosed as having an anxiety disorder or not. And actually what we've observed from our most recent study on these data is that people are moving from being in that clinical category of having an anxiety type disorder to actually not any longer being in that clinical category, which is really impactful. The sort of evaluations and understanding of these data are somewhat held back by the fact that for the vast majority of the time, we don't have a control group that we can compare this to. So we are still at the point of, yes, we understand more about it. And yes, we're starting to be able to observe some really interesting findings from it. But there is still an awful lot more work that needs to be done. But Gloucestershire is actually one of those places in the UK which is hailed as an area of excellence for social prescribing. So there's five areas of excellence uh, identified by the NHS and by the Royal College of General Practitioners as being areas of excellence. And in those five, I think two of them are counties and actually ours is one of those counties so we have perhaps some of the strongest evidence coming out of this county for social prescribing so we've done it for a very long time and we've done it really well which is great. So you mentioned um, earlier some of the um, types of social prescribing could involve uh, things like a gardening group or um, you know any kind of uh, like anything to do with nature. From your understanding what um, benefits are there of nature to well-being because I feel like this is a very like topical thing especially in the last year uh, with everything that's happened and um, there's, there's a lot of focus now on, you know, why is nature good for us? So um, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, there is a lot of focus on it. And actually, it's, it's part of my, the, the work that I'm sort of developing at the moment with some colleagues, not just in the social prescribing area, but also more generally in terms of trying to understand how nature can be beneficial to our health. I suppose most simply put, we're animals. As much as we might like to think that we're not, we are. We are absolutely animals. We are part of nature and nature is part of us. And there is that inbuilt affinity that we have to natural environments and to our natural world that most of us 
uh, feel sort of a really deep connection to. Some of us lose touch with that, though. If we grow up in a really urban environment, if we don't have those meaningful experiences in childhood with nature, we can we can lose that connection. And then over time, we tend to, you know, not get the same benefits from it. But we can regain that connection if we want to. It's not it's not that's not the end of the story. We can by repeated exposure to nature and meaningful exposure to nature. We can reconnect and uh, gain that sort of relationship back with nature. But there are a variety of different pathways by which we understand nature to support our health and well-being now. And it depends on the type of activity, but it also depends on what you're really kind of looking at as the outcome. So we've seen in terms of exposure to nature, there's been boosts to various types of immune cells, reductions to things like cortisol. So my colleague Anne Goodenough, our professor of ecology in our school, and I did a study looking where we took our students out to the West Midlands Safari Park and took them around the lemur enclosure and took saliva samples from them before and afterwards to, to measure their levels of cortisol. And there were some quite nice reductions in cortisol from that experience. Um, and anyone who's ever been to that will know that it's quite an interesting experience because sometimes the lemurs can be way up in the trees and not really doing anything. And sometimes they can be all around you and jumping on your shoulders and all sorts of stuff. It was possibly my most favourite study I've ever done just because it was adorable and lots of fun. <laughs> um, so there's cellular markers in terms of health and well-being, But we also know that living in a natural environment can also confer benefits to us right throughout the life course. So we know that pregnancy, living in very built up urban areas with less uh, good air quality can be impactful to the fetus. Uh, but we also know past birth as well, that living in more green environments can also be better for the respiratory and cardiac health of very young babies and children as they grow old. And then uh, as you get towards the end of the life course as well, in older people living in a much more uh, green environment can also be beneficial in terms of their sort of cognitive capacity, in terms of their sociability, their ability to get around and actually speak to people and also various types of markers of their health and well-being as well. So there's sort of doing the things that was what I refer to as the being, the doing and the living. So there's the, the being in an environment, there's living in an environment, but there's also the doing. So being in a natural environment can also make us, um, particularly those of us who don't particularly like it as much, can make us more inclined to do exercise because it's always nicer to run around a green leafy park than it is to run on a boring treadmill. Even if you've got like Netflix or something in front of you, it's still tedious. So being able to run around a nice park is always uh, much more facilitative of uh, those sorts of positive health type behaviours. And again, we see markers in terms of from everything from the cellular level to, um, you know, immune cells, hormones, things like that, right up to sort of gross person level markers of health, such as mortality. And also whether or not people get cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, loads and loads of different types of markers in terms of health. So connecting with nature, being around nature is hugely beneficial. And I, I know obviously in the last year, it's been very beneficial for most people, particularly as we've all been cooped up indoors. Those of us who've been lucky enough to have green space on our front doorsteps have uh, really reaped those benefits. Um, but it's largely to do with the fact that we just we just like nature. We just feel nature is not complex, you know, urban environments are complicated they can be quite chaotic they can be overwhelming overstimulating being in nature is what our brains are naturally wired to be able to deal with so there's a few different pathways by which it supports our well-being through the reduction of stress being in a situation that's pleasant and uh, you know nice to look at and ever-changing and also this ability to be able to almost it's almost like defragging your brain if you like that being in a less complex environment can allow that sort of cognitive resettling 
So there's a few different uh, ways that it works. As humans, we are animals. Like we, you know, we sometimes think that um, nature is something that you can like own and have and it's separate from us. And actually we're, we're an intrinsic part of it. I can see why there'd be so many benefits for it. Um, and I think also having, um, you know, bringing back the sustainability side of it as well, having that connection with nature, good for your well-being, but also I think it helps you to understand the health of nature more as well. Um, so I definitely think that's a, another benefit there um, from the sustainability side of things. Definitely. And there's a, there's a, that sort of um, relationship to nature. I was mentioning before that, that sometimes we can lose touch with nature if we don't have enough meaningful experiences in nature. But actually, the more that we interact with nature, the more we respect it and we want to conserve it and protect it. So actually getting people out into nature through whatever mechanism, it can only be beneficial because it helps the people, but it also helps them to feel protective over the environment. And the more protective we feel over the environment, the better our environment will be, which will help people even more and so on and so on and so forth. That sounds ideal. That's what we need. <laughs> Rachel, I was um, I was recently reading a paper which you had authored in, and it mentions how social prescribing was once this piece of ad hoc advice, which was given by doctors, um, but now has become increasingly part of this supportive framework. Because um, I'm interested, and I think a lot of viewers would be interested to see social prescribing in its truest form. Do you have any success stories you've ever been involved with or heard about where social prescribing has been particularly successful? Well, it's being incorporated into the NHS long-term plan now, which I think is a massive success. And this has come off the back of probably a decade's worth of research that my colleagues and I have been involved in, but also many people across the UK as well. I have to say that actually social prescribing is particularly strong in the UK as well. It's something that, that has been developed very much in the UK over the last decade. It's picking up in other places around the world, which is also fantastic. But it was set up to address a very specific need. And that very specific need was that we have you know, complex care needs in our primary care patients. I think I forget the statistic precisely, but I think it's a third of primary care patients present to their GP without actually having a physical health need uh, to be there. But they're doing it for a variety of different reasons. And if we can try to support people better through things like social prescribing, then that has to be, you know, a massive benefit. The fact that we can see reductions in clinical markers of mental health is also a massive boon. It's a huge success story in terms of developing something that's person-centered, community-focused as well. The fantastic part about social prescribing is it's not just a win for the patients, but it's also a win for the community. The more money that is put into uh, supporting these types of initiatives, and critically where they are held as well, because some, some of them might be held in GP offices, but most of the time they're usually held in sort of local community centers, maybe uh, church halls or, or things like that. So it actually helps to support the local infrastructure of the community. So by this money being funneled into these specific centres for hosting these types of activities, we're also seeing better care being taken of our local infrastructure as well, which benefits everybody, not just the people who are being prescribed into these interventions. Um, in terms of my own experiences, I think, I mean, I'm a quantitative researcher, so I tend to look at numbers. And I guess for quantitative researchers, it's sometimes really easy to forget that there's a person behind mm -hmm. each of their numbers. 
But what I really like to do as part of my work with Artlift, which is the Arts for Health organisation in Gloucestershire, is to go along to their celebration events when they hold them. So they might have events where they bring uh, participants who've taken part, who will demonstrate some of their art if they've been doing dancing or playwriting, what have you. Or they might have some sort of gallery where they exhibit some of the, uh, the participants' uh, artwork. And actually hearing the stories that people say are, are just hugely impactful, knowing that you know, in many cases, I've had participants saying to me that this intervention has saved their life, you know, regardless of where they've come from. And, and there are a huge amount of different populations that Artlove work with. So they work with local people with mental health needs, but they've also been working with asylum seekers and what have you to try and help them reintegrate into the community. And those groups who are typically left behind by some of our sort of political uh goings on shall we say um so it's quite nice for that uh, sort of reintegration and to actually from the equality of opportunity perspective try to ensure that we are not leaving people behind where at all possible so for me there's there's a whole spectrum of success stories really uh, i'd encourage anyone to have a look at artlift's web website because they have a beautiful video on there where they're it's not very long and they're just talking to a few of the participants who've taken part and it's just every time i show it to my students each year because i do a session on social prescribing in our health psychology module and every time it just sort of really it really gets me and it's just wonderful to see no that sounds wonderful i'll be uh, taking a look at that myself um i think uh, overall i'm i'm certainly very interested to see it uh from the sounds of it it kind of it's gonna you know increase in uh how frequently it's used and how widely it's used so um i'm gonna be interested to see how it continues um but i was unaware that it's actually been uh something that's been going on for quite a while already Unfortunately, a lot of people are unaware that it's been going on for quite a while. I think it, the problem with social prescribing is that the area itself is kind of nebulous. Everybody has an idea of what it is, but they all have a different take on it. So for some people, it's about just recommending that this person that you've spoken to might go to a yoga class or something like that. And for some people, it might be that uh, there's there's particular models in certain areas of the country where they have a really fantastic idea. And I think they're trying to set this up in stride now. Uh, community connected where you might have sort of community champions like bus drivers or checkout workers in the local co-op or or what have you or lollipop ladies who can just offer people advice if they if they have a chat with somebody who feels like they need some extra support who can signpost them towards some of these really great activities that they can do and that is wonderful but that's not social prescribing social prescribing is through that formal mechanism and I think some patients actually really really need that I think they need someone to almost give them the excuse to do something for themselves a lot of people tend to say that afterwards that actually they've loved doing these activities and they wish they did them before but they actually kind of needed that validation from somebody to say it's okay to take that time for yourself it's okay to do something that that is meaningful for you mm-hmm. um, which is wonderful and we're also starting to see it expand into other areas So my colleagues and I recently did an evaluation of a nature on prescription uh, course as well for people with cardiac rehab. So the the Wildlife Trust were taking cardiac rehab patients out to teach them all sorts of different things. So various types of conservation activities, which were fantastic, but also to get them out and about and into nature. And that was really nice to be a part of as well. So we are it is it is definitely expanding. So even though um, 
like I say, it's been going on for a decade. It's it's been very slow and very quiet in its mm-hmm. emergence, but hopefully we will start to see this uh, proliferating even further, not just in terms of across the country and across the world, but also in the mm-hmm. different areas in which it's deployed as well. And I think um, for a lot of our listeners as well who might be interested in looking more into social prescribing, you've obviously got a website on some of the work you do. Is the uh, HERA Lab, the Health Environmental Responsibility in Action. So um, for our listeners, head over to that to check out some more information too. Brilliant. Well, uh, for me, this has certainly been very, very interesting. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Rachel, and uh, for telling us uh, more about the social prescribing that's going on. That's great. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to meet you, Rachel. Well, I think that was fantastic. I mean, I feel like I really understand social prescribing a lot more now. And I honestly hope that the use of it you know, continues to increase because uh, it seems like a really great way to help people in a like really authentic way. That's a great way to put it. I like that. And, you know, also I found Rachel very inspiring too. She, you know, she really knows her stuff around this topic. Yeah, definitely. Um, So next on the show, uh, we have Finn Wilson, who is going to delve more into the connection between nature and people for wellbeing, uh, which is just one form of social prescribing. And here he is. Hi, Finn. How's it going? Hi. Good to see you. Good to have you on the show. Um, so just for uh, our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Sure. Um, so as you know, my name is Finn. I'm currently in the second year of my course at the university studying ecology and environmental science. And I'm a complete nature nerd. <laughs> well, that means you should be perfect for uh, today's theme on uh, social prescribing. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining us today, Finn. So how did you get into your love of uh, nature and what part does it play in your health and well-being? Well, I'm, I'm really lucky um, where I live. Uh, I grew up in rural North Wales, um, so I've just been surrounded by it my whole life and I've been able to kind of just go out and, and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. With ease, really, you know, so so I, I feel really lucky in that sense. Um, it's a huge part of my life. I don't know what I'd do without it, to be honest, especially in lockdown, actually. Um, just just being able to finish a bit of work, go out for a walk and see some birds, see the bees, see the butterflies. Even if you don't see anything, it's just nice to get out and enjoy, and enjoy it, you know, and so it's, it does mean a lot to me. Do you find it's it's particularly helpful then with like health and well-being, you know, that kind of that escape into nature from the daily grind of course i'm i'm a huge advocate for nature for your mental health and well-being i personally don't suffer with um mental health issues but i can feel definitely when i go out in nature i just feel better i just feel you know more relaxed and uh, yeah yeah i find the same i think one of my favorite things um is just to kind of take a few minutes just even if it's just down the local park you know I'm in the middle of a town so that's kind of my nearest area of greenery if you like uh you know I have to go a bit further if I want to really escape um but just being around you know the sights and the smells um seems to bring me like a sense of calm um that you don't get when you're you know studying in the library (laughs) well that's the beauty of it really you don't have to have thousands and thousands of acres and woodlands and lakes to enjoy it i mean uh, i go to pitville park just down the road from where i live in in cheltenham at the moment and i can see all sorts there and it's just nice to sit there and yeah it's just it's nice to soak it all in yeah pitville park is definitely one of my favorite favorite places i also quite enjoy um what i quite enjoy about nature is seeing other people enjoying it and you know I I take regular breaks from study to you know boost my productivity uh, ultimately but it's just nice just to see the connection that other people have with nature and you know you see the passion in them and I think after this year everyone's eager to get outside and I think that in itself alongside nature 
helps me connect with it a bit more as well. And one thing that I'm really enjoying seeing as of a recent is seeing a much more diverse group of people enjoying nature because it's it's for everyone. It's not just for old men with binoculars sat in the high <laughs> looking at birds. It's for absolutely everyone who wants to go out and enjoy it. You don't have to have a pair of binoculars. You can just go for a walk, stick your shoes on and see what you can find. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think that's so true. And, you know, it should be accessible to everybody as well. You know, everyone should be able to take that time out. And also, I mean, personally, Pitbull Park, I just love going to see all the dogs as well. So I get to see nature and, and animals. So. <laughs> um cool so um connecting with nature as part of like a social group um is really good for um well-being as well are you kind of involved with any particular uh nature groups or um or social kind of groups like that i do um keep in touch with a lot of young people around my area um who also enjoy nature it's just good to talk about it we can share things what we've seen i'll say oh i've seen such and such here he might go and see that or she might go and see that um yeah i think it's a it's a really good way of networking and meeting people i think nature is and you don't have to necessarily network with network with people who are your age you can network with anybody really yeah i imagine places like um the uh, gloucestershire wildlife trust as well um you know occasionally they run sort of uh like events and things and you can get involved volunteering and stuff as well so i think um those are great opportunities to get out in nature and again meet people that are potentially of you know different ages different backgrounds uh, but all kind of there for the same reason i've always wanted to join um the dog walking but the only issue is i don't have a dog so i think i'd be a bit weird if i just showed up to some dog meeting group within pitville park with nothing no i'm sure they'd love it i've got a, man- a manic staffy that you can borrow if you can handle her <laughs> oh yeah she's very good most of the time <laughs> so for some people obviously um we quite enjoy nature as we've talked about on this podcast but some people may not have quite experienced nature as much or may not find time for it in their day-to-day lives so um you know what simple ways can students start to benefit more from nature when i was saying i'm, I'm lucky I, I really do try not to take it for granted uh, growing up in north wales you know i've just had i've just been exposed to it my whole life and it's just been so easy for me to get out um but one thing i'm really keen on doing is um, inspiring and getting young people involved with nature and have you heard of a group called the Cameron Bespolka Trust who I'm I'm an ambassador for? No but we'd like to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. So our main objective is to inspire and engage young people with nature so from all backgrounds from all walks of life and so obviously without Covid we would host events all across the UK and try and engage a range of people from different backgrounds into into maybe a young birders day or a guided walk or we'll give a talk or something that sounds brilliant so i guess i mean this would also help kind of address social issues because obviously there is you know certain communities that don't necessarily have the same opportunities as uh, some people that live you know like you said in the countryside surrounded by nature have it on their doorstep um so what would people need to do to find out more about that what was it called again the cameron bespolka trust if you like i can give you the details and you can share it across your our social media platforms yeah yeah that would be excellent that'd be really good and talk a bit more about the trust if, at some point if that's something you'd be interested in yeah yeah that sounds brilliant yeah maybe we can get some uh, like a blog or something going that would be great so do you think there's any other ways obviously you've got the the trust that you're involved with um do you know if there's any other ways that students can get involved like just lo- like you know within gloucester cheltenham um you know any kind of suggestions on how they can connect with nature you know in day-to-day life if you're comfortable, just reach out to a, a local group, perhaps, and say, hey, I'm interested in 
bats, I'm interested in mammals, I'm interested in birds. Can I come along? And, and you don't have to be an expert to, to come along to these things. I'd be interested. That might be something I'd like to get involved with over the summer, especially when things are a little less busy with assignments and whatnot. There's an app I have um, which shows you all the nature reserves that the wildlife trusts have throughout the UK. Mm. So uh, you can download the app and you can see in your local area which is the closest nature reserve or there might, there might be one 20 minutes down the road or something. But yeah, it's, it's a good way to see what's around and you can go and visit these sites. That'd be brilliant. And I think even just for um, like down the road stuff as well, obviously, you know, you say you go to Pitbull Park and that I think sometimes... Um, you know, taking the scenic route through town if you're heading from um, the student village down to FCH or anything like that. I think um, taking those routes as well is another way to kind of get involved with nature just, you know, on a smaller scale, I guess. I often find we're quite spoilt for choice as well. Um, you know, sometimes when you're in the middle of Cheltenham, you think you're in this concrete jungle, but actually in our surrounding areas, we've got some fantastic walks out there. I've also found some amazing opportunities just from looking myself um, where you can volunteer with some of the local councils to help gardening and, you know, keeping the parks up together. And it is something, you know, if I had more time from from uh, university work and courses and deadlines, it would be something I would be interested in doing. And I think, I think I'm seeing more of it now Now we're coming into a bit of a freer period of time. Volunteering is it's so rewarding and it also looks so great on your CV. So it's kind of a win-win, really. Absolutely. I think, um, obviously, Will, you were just saying then about, you know, not necessarily having the time and stuff, but I think actually, you know, this is probably something we should all try and prioritise. Not necessarily just, you know, volunteering is great, but actually just taking out half an hour, an hour a day just to try and be around nature, whether it's walking through the park or heading over to Cleve Hill Top or Leckhampton Hill or... Um, spending some time around your house plants, um, you know, any anything that that kind of gives you, I think, you know, making that time um, and prioritizing that because essentially, you know, we all say, oh, we don't have enough time for things. I think it's so much about what you prioritize, um, and I think prioritizing mental well-being and you know, connecting with nature can really help. That um, should be definitely near the top of our lists. And there is there's another um, really neat way of getting involved with nature. Actually, again, you don't have to know, you don't have to be an expert, and you don't have to have the high-tech equipment. Um, but organisations like the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology, or RSPB, they um, they host annual and sometimes more often an annual events um, such as the Big Garden Bird Watch, which uh, you can get a free resource pack from RSPB. And if you have a garden or a local wild space, go and sit there for an hour, see what you can see mark it down and then upload it onto the website and that's that's not only just contributing to your mental health and just having fun out in nature but you're actually contributing to science through citizen science so it's a really cool project yeah because then you can also see you know you can follow the hashtags and see what's around your area and that sort of thing oh thank you finn that's been really insightful and we definitely had to hear more about the trust that you're involved with um so we'll get some information off you uh, for that and share it with our listeners but yeah thank you very much for joining us today yeah thanks finn i've really enjoyed it thank you will thank you nikki so i think speaking to finn has really highlighted the importance of nature for well-being and there were some great ideas of how you can connect with nature whether that's wildlife watching or just a wander around your local park yeah i mean i think even spending like a short time in nature is definitely good for us um and like uh, rachel mentioned earlier actually it helps us to feel more connected and i think that's important from a sustainability point of view because you know if we feel more connected we're going to feel more passionate about taking care of the environment so it's good for our health and the health of the planet which is you know a bonus all round now our next guest is from the students union you all know her by now 
So a warm welcome to Asha Sutton, our current welfare and diversity officer at the University of Gloucestershire. So Asha, did you just want to give yourself a bit of int- introduction and uh, introduce yourself to our listeners today, please? Yeah, no problem. So uh, my name's Asha, so I'm the current welfare officer at the, at the University Students' Union, and, and I will be, I've been re-elected, so I'll be starting the role of welfare and diversity in July. Congratulations! <laughs> Obviously today uh, we're talking about the connections between nature and well-being, um, and I think you know more than ever we know that there's more and more pressures on young people so you know from your experience as a well-being officer what's your what's the some of the biggest and most common well-being issues that students are kind of experiencing at the moment yeah so I think kind of now more than ever there's kind of the there's a lot of pressure on kind of social media people feeling quite deflated kind of a lot of low moods Uh, I think especially with the time of year as well with kind of exams and kind of a lot of assessments do. There's a lot of kind of high stress levels as well. Um, so people can be feeling quite anxious and quite stressed at the moment. Um, and just kind of, I think a lot of the kind of issues at the moment tend to be kind of the stress and the feeling very deflated mood, I think. Yeah, I think mental health issues um, and just general well-being, there seems to be, you know, more issues now than maybe it's because it's talked about more. But also, I think there is an awful lot of uh, there's more triggers now, more things uh, that make us feel stressed. I think social media is a big one. Lots of fake news and yeah, all these pressures on how to look and act a certain way. And then on top of all of that, it's trying to get your degree and trying to get through your assessments and balance a job and yeah there's there's a lot of things to take on definitely yeah it's a lot of things to juggle like you said isn't it It was like if there's kind of money issues and living and you know family and friends and there's so many different things going on and you would sometimes wonder if there's enough hours in the day I know that feeling (laughs) I think that's sometimes the stress of it is like myself being a student is is trying to find that work-life balance you know trying to find time to do assignments but also trying to find time that I can earn money um I think that's quite a standard thing within the student community as well yeah because I remember as a student myself I was a student ambassador so I was constantly kind of trying to pick up sifts to get money and kind of like afford things but then at the same time there's assessments and then friends wanting to go out and then seeing family so there's so many different things going on it can be really hard to juggle can't it at times in terms of like you know connecting with nature we know that's proven to reduce anxiety and to boost well-being and it's, it's something we try and push a lot within the sustainability department as well as something i know you also advocate for um so what can students do to maximize opportunities for this yeah absolutely so i would definitely recommend like local walks and stuff i think that's really really beneficial um you know there's a lot of local places where students can go such as like Quickly Hill, Cleve Hill, Leckhampton, there's Birdlip, Pitfall Park. So there's loads of different places where students can go for that walk and get that kind of fresh air, you know, especially because of, um, you know, they can kind of go out when they want, get that kind of um, that nature and that breath of fresh air. So I definitely recommend local walks. I know for myself, I like to kind of make sure I go on a walk a day, kind of when you're at home, you know, with the same kind of four walls, it's nice to kind of get out and, you know, enjoy some of that that fresh air and you know listening to a podcast or some music it just be really really beneficial um as well as kind of gardening as well so for students that have gardens I know myself I absolutely love you know kind of planting flowers and you know like mowing the lawn and everything and just chilling out in the garden like that can be lovely so definitely if, uh, if students have got a garden I definitely say why don't you do that and then like going to Pitbull Park as well even if you just go for like a coffee like you just go for a nice drink um, and you just sit down and kind of like, I love to people watch. 
Yeah, I think um, for those as well that um, don't have uh, a garden, say, obviously we've got um, the allotment um, and the um, edible garden at FCH. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out on what we're doing with the sustainability team because, um, you know, we like to get students involved with that so you can kind of have the benefits of doing some gardening and being outdoors Um without you know having your own space because obviously so many of them are living in you know apartments flats student halls that kind of thing so yeah i must say though gardening is not necessarily my strong point i am um, i have two house plants um and both are not looking so well at the moment so <laughs> i'm desperately trying to save my house plants definitely it really clears your head as well doesn't it which is really mm. nice so it just gets you out and about yeah i think a good thing about being with nature as well is that um you know you can kind of just switch off from all the the news the social media the busyness just you know you can just feel really like removed from it all and like definitely one of my favorite things is going like on a hill walk and then you sit at the top when you're like exhausted and you're like at the top of this hill and you're just like looking out on the world and everything's so small and far away and it just makes you feel really content um so yeah if i have time that week this weekend i'll be doing that between assignments Um, I think everyone needs to make time in within their day for something to do that and myself personally I always set myself targets one of those being I got myself a Fitbit and I, I want to make sure every day I get to my 10,000 steps um, and it just gives me that motivation that boost to get out in, in nature and I feel so much more better and just almost spiritually cleansed by the time I've got back. Definitely and I think as well like sometimes I don't even take my phone out when I go for a walk so that I can kind of you know, I don't have any distractions or like you say, any any like news or anything. I can really connect with nature, connect with the world and like ground myself as well, like clear my head, switch off and just like be in the present moment. Like I like to do a lot of mindfulness and like meditation. So it's nice to kind of just stop, isn't it, as well. So um so yeah, for sure that's that's a very nice thing to do. <laughs> Yeah. And for for those listening as well, you know, um, mindfulness is not just about, you know, sitting cross-legged on the floor, humming to yourself, like just being present. So as you said, like, you know, not being on your phone, just enjoying, you know, where you are, noticing the smells, the sounds, uh, you know, the wind on your face, that kind of thing. Um, And just kind of experiencing that moment, um, that's practicing mindfulness. And, um, you know, you can do that literally anywhere. So um, but nature is definitely one of the nicest places to do it. <laughs> and even like deep breathing as well, like wherever you are, just taking some, you know, deep breaths in, deep breaths out, like what a difference that makes. Like it makes me so much more calmer if I'm feeling stressed to just breathe, which is sounds like something so easy and something so like we do so effortlessly. But if you really like make it, like time to just do it, it really helps um, mm. as well. And like something else that I'm doing is um, I'm doing the 100 miles from May uh, for the Mind Charity. So it's kind of like, Will was saying about kind of getting to the 10,000 steps and having a target like a goal as well. That's really got me out as well. And um, because of I'm trying to do three miles a day, which is actually really motivating me and making me very productive when I probably wouldn't be before. So having like a purpose as well can be really nice. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Oh, good luck with that. It sounds like a good, a good uh, task. So obviously, you know, particularly today, we've been talking about the benefits of nature to well-being. Um, but obviously, uh, this whole podcast is around social prescribing, which is a much broader kind of subject that um, and peer to peer support can be really important. Um, so based on that, can you tell us a little bit about the new uh, Nightline service that's been developed at uh, Uni of Gloss? So there's a mature student who has set it up, Steve, um, who approached the SU to kind of get it set up and kind of propose the idea. Um, so essentially, the Nightline is a student-led listening service and the support helpline 
um, and it's kind of an out and out, out of hours service for students so like when you know student services and universities kind of teams aren't available this is where the nightline can come in and um, so they can be it's just ran by students for students essentially um, and they can kind of call about anything and just have that like person that can listen and just like to talk to when they're feeling low or alone um, or have any issues and um, so yeah we are currently kind of recruiting like listener volunteers which will be current students um, as well as a committee as well who kind of lead the nightline service and um, we hope to launch in September so for new students who come in it could be ready um, and it's essentially like a confidential anonymous non-judgmental non-advisory service for students um, and quite a few universities across the UK have one and it's really really beneficial it really makes a difference and um, to have that person to talk to when you really need it at, you know midnight 4am and whatever if you need that person you don't know where to go who better than a like-minded student who might know how you're feeling and can kind of relate so yeah it's all going very very well we're very happy with it how it's progressing um but it will be something really really great to university students yeah i think that would be fantastic because also you know it that you know at that point like you know those thoughts come to you you know that you're feeling down uh, you know they, they do tend to come to you at the worst times like when you're just about to try and go to sleep um or you're you know you're staying up worrying till whatever time in the morning and um you know it's not always as easy to reach out to people you'd normally talk to maybe your friends or your family or you know or do whatever exercises maybe outdoors that you might do to kind of calm yourself and make yourself feel better so actually having um um that kind of um connection available um to students uh to utilize when they're feeling like that i think is absolutely brilliant and it sounds like it's been successful in other places so i have no doubt it will be the same here at uog and another thing as well which is really good is um the nightline will be like a lot of students can feel like they're a burden and can feel like they don't want to kind of like they don't want to discuss it with their friends or family because they don't want to like distract them or bother them so like if there is a student that just wants to ask a question or wants to just run something by someone and say it out loud like get something off their chest the nightline will be a great thing to facilitate that and give them the opportunity to just talk. I think the first thing that struck me with nightline is like like you said there sometimes when students or if anyone you know they go to someone about a problem I think they'll be more inclined to open up because they'll be speaking to students and I think this whole nightline idea of it being run by students will actually be quite proactive and in getting people to open up a bit more about how they're feeling and you know, then they can get the support that they want. And I think it's, I think it's much needed in, this, in the society today where we talked about previously how we've got so many more pressures. I think it would be really worthwhile um, for the future of, of the university. Definitely. And what's really nice as well, like you said, it's like people who can relate. It might be someone that's in your year, someone that is on your course, like someone that understands the potential pressures and like feelings that a student may be feeling. So to have someone that can relate and can experience it and maybe also like, more accurate advice as well like for that level like it's just really really nice to have that relatability for sure so is this something that's already available or is it currently in the process of being developed it's currently in the process of being de- developed there's stages that we have to go through and um, to kind of get it like signed off and approved by the nightline association and um, so it's something that's currently being planned and um, so we're currently like recruiting the last of our listener volunteers and our committee roles and um, so once we've done that and once it's gone through the stages um, and we've got like accommodation assigned and stuff like where the nightline can be held and um, that's when then it will be ready. So that's why we're hoping to launch it in September for our new students. Fingers crossed. 
<laughs> oh, it's a fantastic time for it to be uh, getting up and running as well, just ready for the next academic year. Absolutely. Well, that sounds fantastic. It's been amazing and a massive pleasure having you on today's podcast of Social Prescribing. So thank you for joining us today, Asha. Right, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to share all of these kind of top tips and experiences and really hope it helps. <laughs> Certainly has. Thank you. Well, I'm really interested to see this Nightline programme kick off in the new academic year. Very inspiring. Yeah, I think it's going to play a really important part in you know supporting the mental well-being of students at uni. Um, it's a really great initiative from the sounds of things. Yeah, and it's great to get an insight into the perspective of the student population too. I think more than ever we're seeing how well-being and sustainability are ever more connected. Yeah, I agree. Now, that's the end of our episode of Live Smart Investigates. Uh, we hope you feel more informed now about what social prescribing is uh, and how it can make a difference. I certainly feel more clued up now. Uh, of course, if you want to find out other ways to boost your well-being or connect with nature, uh, check out our Live Smart page on the Uni of Gloss Sustainability website or follow any of our social media pages, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where we regularly share tips on ways to live smarter. Yeah, thanks, everyone, and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Gloucestershire Sustainability. Visit sustainability.gloss.ac.uk or follow on Instagram at UOG Sustainability to find out more.